0: Today, as we come to these verses, verse 11 and 12, we're going to be talking about God's discipline, the discipline of the Lord. And even more specifically, we're going to talk about how do you actually come to the point that we not only understand God's discipline, but we embrace God's discipline. Uh, Many of us remember Uh, Various times growing up where we did something that was wrong and our parents disciplined us. We didn't really like that when it happened. Um, Some of you even who are parents in this room have had that horrible experience of when you discipline this child that you've given birth to and you've loved and you've raised, they, they look right at you and say, I hate you. And you're just like, I, I, what do you do? And it, it makes you at that moment want to say, you know what, I probably I shouldn't discipline you. But, but this is one of the realities. Rarely do children know what's best for them. Rarely do they know, right? If we let children eat whatever they wanted to eat, they probably wouldn't pick the very best things for themselves. They would... They would pick what tastes the best, but, but what wouldn't necessarily be the most nutritious. And, and so we're seeing in this passage that, that God, like a father, is a father who disciplines us. And sometimes we, everything in us rails against that. Everything in us says, no, no, you know, don't, don't do that. I don't like that. But we want to come to the point that we understand God's discipline, we understand the heart that that discipline comes from, and we understand what God is trying to produce so that we actually can embrace it. We can can be glad for it. Um, Every parent or every adult that had parents that were faithful, not, not abusive parents, but Parents who were firm and clear, who who made clear what was expected and, and corrected verbally and if need be even physically if a child was resistant. I just have never met an adult like that who was not grateful for a mom and dad who loved them enough to discipline them. It wasn't pleasant when it was happening. But they see now as adults, there's a lot of fruit in their lives. In the same way, God has a plan and he's disciplining us. We want to understand that discipline and we want to even come to embrace that discipline. So let's just begin by kind of walking through these two verses and just understanding some of the things that are there. So let's just read 11 and 12 again. My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. So we see in these verses uh, two things, two very tender warnings to us. As we said, it's sort of that natural tendency of a son of a child to uh, to want to push away, to not like, to not embrace the discipline of the parent. And so the two warnings are right there: do not despise the Lord's discipline, or do not be weary, or. Be weary of his reproof. So, two things we're not to do we're not to despise the Lord's discipline, and we're not to be weary of the Lord reproving us. Those are the two temptations. So, these two warnings that we have, we need to put it in context. They're tender warnings. You notice he began in verse 1 by calling him my son. Uh, Proverbs is put in this concrete framework. Of a son teaching, or of a father teaching a son. It doesn't mean, as we saw back in chapter one, mothers are intimately involved in that teaching process as well. But this is giving a concrete example. So you can imagine a father explaining the life and explaining wisdom, explaining right from wrong to a son. And he makes that very tender address in verse 1. And he repeats it in verse 11. Because we just, it's so hard to hear this. And so he just wants you to know, I'm getting ready to warn you. I'm getting ready to give you some some medicine. But I need to explain that this medicine comes from a heart of love. Uh, I remember um, something I heard Josh McDowell say years ago. And I thought it was really helpful about parenting and disciplining. And he said this about why a lot of kids rebel. And it's not the only reason, but one reason that kids rebel is because parents oftentimes lay down rules without really nurturing and establishing the relationship. So his little pithy saying was, uh, rules without relationship leads to rebellion and so you need to realize you know there're a lot of strict parents out there but the child has no idea that they're actually loved or valued or cared for and you notice in these two verses both of those are emphasized uh, god's love and and god's uh, delight in the child but but that actually means he's going to discipline that child and the father is also saying this is going to be the reality in the human relationship as well. So there are two tender warnings. Don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't be weary of the Lord's reproof. But there's also one eye-opening reality. One eye-opening reality. Um, And it's just fundamentally this. I mean, notice the two words that are used there. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves and then it says as a a father the son in whom he delights i mean that's a little overwhelming isn't it i mean i mean th- this is really eye opening i mean how does god look at you or or, or how does god feel about you uh, god loves you <laughs> And, and, and not only just he loves you, sort of like I'm going to do right by you no matter what. The idea is he delights in you. Now, I know there are those of us in this room, we want to cringe, we want to shy away from that language. That's just a little too intimate between us and almighty, holy, holy, holy God. Yet it's not our language. It's not sentimentalism. It's not something that we're just coming and saying, oh yeah, I think I'm special, therefore I know God thinks I'm special. No, it is the clear declaration of Scripture that God loves his sons and daughters and that God even delights in them. And that word delight has in it the idea uh, of, of an emotion, of a feeling, of, of, of a sincere uh, um, joy that God takes in his children. So the two tender warnings, don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't be wearied as reproof and the eye-opening reality of why you shouldn't despise it is, look, he actually loves you. He loves you. He even delights in you and that means that he's got a purpose in what he's doing. So, With that as sort of an introduction to these two verses, let's just kind of uh, slowly walk through and think about what it's saying and what it means. Verse 11, my son, so the father talking to the son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Now you notice back in verse 1, he says, my son, do not forget my teaching. So the father has been saying that he's the one, along with the mother, we saw that in in chapter 1, verse 8, That they're teaching the child. That's their job. Uh, uh, You're not, remember we said this over and over again, parents, your, your job, your goal is not to be your child's best friend. That may happen, especially adult relationships. Sometimes it does happen. That's never your goal. If you're if that's your goal, you will abandon your job. And your job is to teach, to parent, to instruct, to guide. To, to be that, that, that uh, leading force in your child's life. And so the, the dad is saying again in chapter two, uh, 3, verse 1, look, I'm, I'm teaching. Don't forget what I'm teaching you, and, and you've got to keep it all your days. You've got to receive my teaching and retain my teaching. Same thing that was said in chapter 1, verse 8. But isn't it interesting that when you get down to verses 11 and 12, He's now saying, look, I'm doing this teaching, but behind me, actually God's the one who's working in your life. He's actually the real father. He's actually the one who's trying to shape you. He's the one who is working to refine you and to make you into a a kind of person, not an evil person, but a righteous person, a good person. And that's what God is is doing. And so it's really helpful here, parents, that that you need to realize that that your job is not ultimate. You're a pale, flawed reflection. But the best thing you can do for your child is to lead them to God, lead them to a a, a relationship with the Lord, because what they find out there is is what you were doing in a flawed and feeble and frail way that God is doing in a perfect way, that he's actually the force and you're just trying to reflect what he's doing. You're trying to be faithful to God, but he's that refiner. He's that one who's molding that child and he's doing a work inside of them. And so that's, that's a really important thing for us To recognize, for you parents to realize you're not alone in trying to help your child and and you're not alone in trying to help yourself. If you're a believer, you can trust God's the ultimate shaper. He's the one who's training and disciplining. So again, he makes this point, don't despise the Lord's discipline. The idea of despising it means to reject it to want nothing to do with it, to just, at your core, to just dislike it, to just turn your back on it. And and this is what many people do. I mean, somehow we've been taught in the modern world that, that actually the worst thing you can do for your child is to discipline them at all. But according to God's word, and according to empirical proof through thousands of years, the way that you demonstrate that you love your child is you actually discipline them, you train them, you care. You do not what makes them feel good at the moment, but what will ultimately produce the best things in their life. Even when they're looking at you and go, I hate you, you're the worst parent ever. You realize you're not running your parenthood on the basis of popularity, but on the basis of the clear compass of God's word. And that allows you to say, okay, wow, okay, God said this. He's going to work in their life. And and so the point, notice this is being spoken to the child. This is being spoken to the child. It's being spoken to each of us as a child. Don't despise. Don't reject it. Don't, Don't look at this and say, I don't want anything to do with this. And what is it that we're not to despise? It's the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline. Again, you see that's the covenant name for God. Lord. When you see that, by the way, back in verse 4, you'll see, so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God. That's just the generic name, God, uh, Elohim. But when you're talking in in, uh, the very specific context of people who are bound to God in a relationship, a pact, a covenant, that name that God has revealed is, I am that I am, Yahweh, the Lord, and that's that's what he's talking about. So this is talking, assuming the child has received uh, the 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 teaching of the father, and they have trusted God for themselves. They've trusted the Lord with all their heart, as it says in verse five. So he says, don't don't reject, don't despise, don't want nothing to do with the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline. That word, discipline, is a key word in uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, It's the word musar, uh, transliterated M-U-S-A-R, musar. And it has kind of a range of meanings. And it's translated two ways primarily in the book of Proverbs, but it can mean three things, essentially. Um, Back in chapter 1, let me just show you, uh, verse 2 the same word appears in 1-2. It says, to know wisdom. Wisdom was hakma, And instruction. It's the same word, musar, right there. Instruction. Now, why do they translate it instruction there and discipline in Proverbs 3? Well, it's because it's in the range of meanings of this word. And the way that you tell what a word means is, is words are not static, sort of like... Uh, I plug this word in and it always means this. If it has a range of meanings, you determine the meaning by the context. And the context in Proverbs, when it relates to verbal instruction, then you come back and say, oh, we're going we're gonna to take that word, or, or when it's a verbal rebuke or correction, we're going to translate the word instruction. When it is more of a spanking or, or uh, an affliction or, or beating with a rod, even as it says, we're going to translate the word discipline. So those are the two ways they do that in Proverbs. So notice there, to know wisdom and instruction. Why did they choose instruction? Well, look after the comma. To understand words of insight. So whenever it's near or in the context of verbal rebuke, verbal correction, they translate that word in the ESV as instruction. When it's more about a physical uh, rebuke, a a corporeal punishment, they translate the word discipline like you see there in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11, it's not as clear as you will see in chapter 13. Turn with me to chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever, 1324, whoever spares the rod hates his son. So this is actually the, the, the flip side. It's not just like, well, I don't really want to discipline my child. I don't, want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to correct them when they're going wrong. So maybe I don't, I'm not doing everything God says, but I don't hate my child. Well, no, the Bible says here you actually do. You, you hate them. Uh, if you don't discipline them. But he who loves him is diligent to musar, to discipline him. Now, why do they translate it discipline and not instruct him? Because it's in a context of physical um, uh, training, physical correction, not just verbal correction. One more example to show you that, look in chapter 23, and there, there are many of them, but these are just a few. Chapter 23, verses 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline, Musar, from, your, from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from So here again, the Musar is translated as discipline because it's in the context of a physical correction. Um, This is one way to look at this then. What Musar in, in the context of words, it's saying you see your child doing something and maybe they've never heard it, right? The first time they're playing outside and they start to run toward the street. And you go, no, no, don't run toward the street. Don't play in the street. You've just corrected them. You've just moussard them. But it is it is the musar of instruction. You've instructed them. They, how can they know not to do it if you don't tell them to do it? Or even sometimes you, uh, maybe they've played in the street, and then they get really excited, and the ball runs out, and and you have to say, I told you, don't play in the street. It's, again, it's still Musar. It's instruction, but it's a correction, either uh, a verbal correction, first time laying down the law, or even a sort of, I need to stiffen up and I need to be really clear, very firm with my voice. I don't know about you, you all, but I, it seems like it's a Southern thing. I know why our parents gave us three names, Right? Um, our parents gave us three names so that when they were really serious, they could say them all, and we knew I really mean it. So when I heard David Joe Brady, I knew, okay, you know, if it was David, I was like, ah, they don't mean it quite yet. But when it was David Joe Brady, I knew you better straighten up. And um, my dad, his favorite form of punishment for me, I still remember it, I mean, I'm not advocating this, but this was his, he would grab me by the ear, and I guess he had to do this, because, you know, he was preaching, and it, was, it probably wasn't always the best thing just to, to spank me right there in public, but he'd grab me by the ear, and he'd twist that ear, and, and you know, David Joe Brady, don't you do that, and um, I, I remember, but those were, those were that's what that... Uh, that verbal form is now, when you actually have a child who won 't listen, they won 't listen to the musar, the verbal instruction. The Bible says you move you stiffen up, you move to to greater forms of uh, musar that can even be to the rod, which would be physical uh, uh, spanking or or other other ways that you would find that, okay, this is a physical way to get a hold of them. Grab them, grab them by the ear, stop them, restrain them, whatever. You're, you're moving now to the Musar of discipline. The one thing, though, that these contexts don't have, but the word Musar can mean, is the word Musar can mean punish. And some translations occasionally will will... will have rendered it in in that way, punish. But the idea of punish means that you are trying to make them pay the penalty for their rebellious, uh, sinful ways. You're making them pay the penalty. It's not corrective. You're not trying to teach them anything. You're just punishing them. They've done wrong, and they have to bear the weight of that sin. They pay the penalty for that sin. And musar can mean that. That's not primarily how it's used uh, in, in the Bible. But there are times, there are times that it comes down to more of a chastisement where it's actually you're paying the penalty for your rebellion, for your sin, for your misdeed. God's told you it's wrong God stiffened up and his, his discipline has gotten more intense, even to physical, uh, in the case of us, not in being in the, the parent relationship with God, where it's affliction, other physical ways that he tries to get our attention. And then it can mean on the very extreme, there's actual punishment. You're paying the penalty for your sin. Well... He says, don't don't reject this. Don't despise when God is musaring you, when God is verbally correcting you, and then even if he has to physically move to to correct you in that way. I mean, we think about this. um, uh, The reason this matters is, and we see in this context, is because we know he loves us. It's coming from a heart of love. But this is, God's love is not just a feeling, it's a feeling that always has a purpose. God is trying to help you grow up so that you're not just going to be an immature person, but you'll be a, a fully mature, you will be that person that will be the wise son, not the foolish son. And so that's his goal. He's trying to make you, he's trying to make you wise. He's, he's trying to teach you right from wrong, uh, uh, better from best. He's trying to show you don't go that way. And so uh, this is one of the things that you have to recognize about God's Musar. Even though it is painful, because all discipline, even a verbal rebuke is painful, the reason that we know it's a good thing Is because it always has a purpose. I mean, you know this as as a parent, don't you? That the worst thing though is is when you discipline your child, and the only purpose you've got is, is you're just mad. Right? God's not just sitting up there, you know what, I'm just mad, so I think I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, just put some kind of affliction on you. You're just mad. You know, I mean, that's the immature. God is perfect in, in every way. And His discipline is always for a purpose. It's to move you from being that simple person, the uncommitted to anything, open to everything person, to becoming that wise person. So He wants to bless you, strengthen you, conform you, to an image that he has of what you need to be, and he wants to grow you up, mature you. Don't despise that. Don't despise that. That's that's what God has. He's got a purpose for you. And then we see again, as he continues on, he wants to reiterate this, and he says, or be weary of his reproof. Be weary of his reproof. And this is the idea that um, not only do people reject it, but sometimes it just physically it just wears you out, you know. And you just feel like I'm just going to throw my hands up. I'm I'm just I'm just weak. I'm just done. And we just kind of quit, right? We faint. We give in. We give up. He says, "Don't don't become weary." the The greater the pain that's coming from God that means he's he's working he's working. Don't get weary at it now this word reproof here it comes from the sphere of of the the courtroom. It's a legal term, and it means to establish what is right. It is always a judicial word always when somebody's standing. In the gate, which would have been the the courtroom of that day, standing in the gate is what they described it, and the person is establishing and saying, this is what's wrong, Uh, you you know. this is what's being done, it's wrong, but this is what is right. It's a charge, an indictment. So when God takes your life and he compares it to his standard and there's an indictment brought against you, you're not living the way you should be living, you're not doing what you need to be doing, you don't need to just get weary of that. You, you think about in the New Testament uh, how your t- fathers are told not to exasperate their children, bring them up in the fear and, and discipline of the Lord. Uh, we know how sometimes as parents we just overdo it, right? Parents just, they're just always on the case of their child, right? Always on the case, just never, ever quitting. Well, and sometimes kids just say, I can't ever please my parents, right? Can never do anything right. Well, when God reproves us and He establishes in that courtroom this is what's right, we need to not be weary of it because we know it comes from a father who loves us, a father who even delights in us, and he's a good father and he's trying to shape us into something he's trying to he's trying to grow us, he's trying to refine us that's hard that's a hard thing i, I I told Jennifer, she got home uh, last night from uh, a trip and uh, I told her, I, we were talking about what I was preaching on today. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I expect this will be for somebody else, but I'm I'm preaching this sermon for me. Um, because I, I, I literally, I'm, I am a really stubborn person. I don't know if, if y'all know that about me, but I am. I'm a stubborn, stubborn person. And so many times... God has just tried to get my attention about things. And I just, I'm like, not doing it, not doing it. And I'm just going to grip my teeth. And I'm just like, and, and, and God, you know, he starts out, David, you need to pay attention. David, you need to pay attention. Then he goes, David, Joe, you need to pay attention. And then it's, David, Joe, Brady, you need to pay attention. And I'm just like, no, I'm not paying attention. And he just, he just keeps coming. And, and I, have, I have experienced the discipline of the Lord. And this is the thing that I realized, though. As soon as I said that, I realized this. He says, the Lord reproves whom he loves as the Father, the Son in whom he delights. The discipline of the Lord is not an elective in the school of God. If you are his son, if you are his child, son, daughter, him disciplining you is not an elective. I mean, there are you know, they're bad children out there. They're stubborn children. And then they're really stu- very uh, super stubborn children like myself. But the truth is, there's no child that comes into the family of God or into any human family that's fully shaped and fully formed and fully fashioned. They've got to have that firm, loving hand to guide them. So, so when you go, well, I'm the only person God's ever done this to. Really? No. Every son whom he loves, everybody who is his child, this is a required course. This is a part of the core curriculum in God's educating of his children. You will be disciplined. You will be rebuked you will be afflicted. You will have whatever it takes because let me tell you, God is absolutely 100% committed to you growing into that wise, well-rounded person, that image that he has designed. He is committed to it. He's not like parents who make a commitment, say, I'm going to really do well, I'm going to be consistent, and they hang on for... A week or two weeks. He's completely consistent. It's it's a required course in the school of God. So don't feel like I'm the only person God's ever done this to. I'm the only person who's ever had this happen. It happens to all of us. In fact, it's a part of the sign that you belong to him. One commentator put it this way. He says, when the father's admonitions are violated, the son can expect the Lord to to back it up with a spanking to prevent the wrong from becoming habitual. You know, I I think about this. God created all that exists in six days, the heavens and the earth. (laughs) He created everything. And it's taken decades trying to shape me and shape you. Do you realize? And this is this must be a really tough task. This is what, and yet he's saying this is the this is the 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 height of what he's about. Uh, that he is going to shape you. And if he isn't shaping you, and if he's not disciplining you, and he's not reproving you, then you aren't his. Tertullian. Uh, 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 a theologian uh, writing in the 200s in North Africa, he said, uh, the worst thing is not God being angry at you. It's when God ceases to be angry at you. If you've never since, and he was using that word angry in a loose sense, but if, if God's not doing anything, if he's not actually trying to move you forward, if you don't feel content, when you read the word of God, if you don't have that uneasiness in your spirit, if there are no afflictions in your life, no setbacks, no closed doors, no difficult relationships, no losses of job, everything financially is going your way, on and on and on, then you can be pretty sure you don't belong to him. That should be the most worrying thing in the world if your life is just smooth sailing and always has been because God disciplines his children. He reproves them. He, he, he sets forth, here's the right and here's your life and they're not in line. Again, see verse 12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. It's, it's guaranteed. God's going to do this. He's going to reprove somebody whom he loves. He's going to show his standard, the right, and he's going to show the gap with your life. And it is a absolute one-to-one relationship. If he does that to you, it's because you're his and he loves you. I mean, you think about it. um, We all see, say, out in the mall or somewhere, you see kids that are acting terribly and and you all think, yeah, if that were my child, I would do this or say that or, or whatever, right? But you don't. You don't because why? They're not yours. They're not yours. Why does God say something to you? Why does He point up the sin in your life? Why does He allow you to go through such hard times? Because He loves you, and you're His. You're His. And he then makes the analogy. He says, "This is just like a father. As a father, the son in whom he delights. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Um, th- that's the relationship. And this is preparing us for the great revelation of Jesus, our Father, which art in heaven. And you know, I mean, what a what an incredible reality! God is our Father." But, but Father means he's re- he, we're not only His, but He's responsible to be that, that shaping force in our life, that guiding force in our life to musar us, to discipline us, to rebuke us, to reprove us, to, to physically afflict us if necessary to get to the good and ultimate goal. He's that kind of Father. I, I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, you know, He said, when people actually realize that about God being a father, he says, they don't really want a father in heaven. He says, what they really want is a grandfather in heaven. So that, that everybody would be able to say, at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Isn't that what it is? Those of you who are grandparents, you know that's the case. When the grandchild is acting up, you go, Yeah, you smile and you shower them with gifts and you love on them because you know you're sending that problem back home to the ones who are really responsible for them and they can deal with it. You're not going to deal with it because you want to be liked and loved. That's what we want. We want a grandfather, our grandfather in heaven, right? Good time was had by all. Well, let's look at the context just step back out of these two verses. Look at a little broader context. Why is God doing this and why does God need to do this? Well, look at the context. One in verse one, my son, do not forget my teaching. Well, God's got to discipline us because we forget, right? I mean, we're just prone to forget. I mean, how many times you go, how many times have I told you before? Well, God has to do the same thing because we, we forget. We forget what God is saying, what God has said, and we need to be reminded. So his discipline sometimes is that verbal rebuke. I don't know about you, sometimes I'm reading the Bible, and I mean, it's just like, oh, the conviction is overwhelming, right? People say sometimes after a sermon, oh, man, you that one was, you know, my toes are bleeding, right? And I always tell them the only reason that is because it first hit me. You know, it, it, that, that's the word of God. It, it, I don't know what it is, but we go, we are so into our grandfather in heaven that we want to go to church that the only thing people ever hear is just how nice they are and good they are and how you can be a little nicer, do a little more. Nobody wants to go to church and be challenged, corrected, reproved, but let me just tell you, if that's how God is, then God doesn't love you. Um. I think about people who've said, done crazy things in relationship with me. And when I don't take the time to confront them, you know what fundamentally it means? I don't really care. The love of God when it says that he loves us, do you know what, how that's, that plays out? He's paying attention to you. And you think about that, of all the things going on in the universe, he actually knows where you are in your development. And he cares about you, paying attention. As a parent, you think about it. I mean, you're watching March Madness, right? And, and your child is doing something, and they're going off the rails on a very crazy train, and you just let them, because you're like more interested in what you're going, oh, I'll get to it later. Love is, this is my job, and I, I am going to pay attention to them, and God is paying attention to us. So why does he have to do this? Because we forget. But notice the goal, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Why do we need to be disciplined? Because he's going to expose how there are areas of our life or there are portions of our heart that we are not trusting him with. And so God is committed. He says, I want... A comprehensive trust. So I'm going to put this in this child's life, so that they can see that they're actually not as far along as they think. You know, I've heard so many people. I don't need to go to church because I can. You know, I can listen to the preaching on TV and I can read my Bible and I'm good with Jesus. Do you know one of the things about being a Christian at home that is so deadly and dangerous? is it allows you to fool yourself and think you're actually more Christ-like than you are. It's when you get around other people who rub you the wrong way and you rub them the wrong way that you realize just how small your trust in God is. What what is God trying to do? He's wanting to shape you to that point that your trust in Him is with all that you are. You are all in. And He's going to do whatever it takes if there is some portion of your heart that is not His. You have a divided heart. He's going to unite your heart to fear His name. And then He says, don't lean on your own understanding. So you've got people, oh, yeah, I trust the Lord with all my heart. But then on the other side, they're still doing a little leaning. Yeah, I'm going to trust God to help me get through this situation. But, you know, praise the Lord and pass the gunpowder, right? You know, I mean, we're just going to lean here, right? We're just going to, we're going to trust God's going to do it. But we're ready if he doesn't, right? They're just leaning on the ways of the world. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to afflict you until you realize that that wall you're leaning on is a tottering fence. I'm going to pull it out from under you. I'm going to pull that chair out from under you. I mean, all of us, we're all leaning on things, banking on things, got our plans, our ambitions. Um, I recently found a, a, a red piece of paper that I filled in in my 20s. <laughs> and it was a list of all these outrageous, huge goals. I mean, we, we didn't have the term back when I was growing, but it was essentially my bucket list in the 20s, right? All these things I wanted to do and I wanted to accomplish. I mean, and they were, I, I look at them and I just laugh. I mean, I just laugh. I'm like, I was so deluded. But you know what? On there, there's not one of them that says, you know what? I want to be like Christ just do stuff, be significant, be important, do this, do that, go here, accomplish this. But it was nothing about that internal shaping of my soul and my character. And God says, you've got all of these goals, but but, but it's, it's coming out of being wise in your own eyes. And so I'm going to pull all those things away because what I really want is a man after my own heart. And I'm going to pull all of those False crutches away. Maybe you're in that season right now and you're like, Lord, this is not where I thought I would be. This is not what I thought. This is not the goal. This was not the plan. And God says, don't worry about it because my plan is better. You may not like the way that it gets there. It may not be pleasant. But it's good. And then he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That, that Remember, we said that acknowledge is, could, would be better translated just know. In all your ways, know him. That's a little weird to say it that way, but what that means is, is in everything in life, you know God, and you know his faithfulness. That's why he's going to come right down, and he says, honor the Lord with, uh, with your wealth, right? Because he's going to say, that's one way you can know God. You can know God in your finances. You can know God in your marriage. You can know God as a parent. You can know God as a student. You can know God when you're unemployed. You can know God when you're in the mountaintop, when you're in the bottom of the valley. You come to know God in all of those ways. That's really the purpose of of life, isn't it? I mean, what does it say? Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You want to insight into life, what life is about? Then come to know God in every area, in every circumstance. A- acknowledge Him in all your ways. And that's what God's doing. And He's, he's in this passage, He's showing them all the ways that they're, they're not doing that. And, and He assumes, you know, you, you think about these verses when it says, trust God, then verse 7, fear the Lord, verse 9, honor the Lord. We We cherry pick those verses as though here it is, you're going to get it right on the first go-round, but these verses 11 and 12, you know what they're making clear? Nobody gets those right on the first go-round. Nobody gets that right Not in this life. You are going to be under the musar, the guiding, shaping hand of God until you are perfected when you are in His presence but he's that shaping, guiding God. So what is he doing, and, 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 and how are we, how is he disciplining us? He's disciplining us when we don't trust him with all of our heart. We don't have a total trust. He's disciplining us when we trust him, but we trust other things as well. We're leaning on our own understanding. He, he is going to discipline us when we have certain areas of our life that we trust him, but not others. I mean, think about the imagery. This, this is... What You realize this whole thing, if you had to put it in a doctrinal term, this is all sanctification, right? That's what he's saying. You're already a child. You're in this covenant relationship. He's sanctifying you. But what are some other ways, other images? He says this, uh, like a potter who's who's shaping that clay. What's the potter trying to do? He's trying to make something useful out of that lump. You ever tried to drink water without a cup? It's pretty hard, right? You can do it, but you're going to invent a cup pretty soon. Because you need something to hold it. It's a very useful thing. Don't you want to be useful to God? Let me tell you, as you are, as a lump of clay, you're not useful. So God is going to shape you until you become useful. Uh, You you think about God really wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to bear lots of fruit, fruit of the Spirit and, and, and fruit of good works in your life. So what's he going to do? He's going to prune you. Because he's the gardener. He's the one who knows what, what branches need to be cut and pushed back so that there can be greater fruitfulness. I'm sure that, that if, if the vine could speak, it wouldn't say, I really liked that. But it is going to make for greater fruitfulness. And then the other image throughout the Scripture is that of refining, right? Like gold and silver. But it's mixed with stuff that's not gold and silver, And so God says, I'm going to heat it up. And that process of heating it up is refining it. And then he scoops off the dross. So God is shaping, God is pruning, God is refining you until there is total trust, exclusive trust, comprehensive trust. So just quickly, what are some of the ways that God is doing this or why is he doing this? Maybe he is correcting you because you continue in a path of sin. It's not the only thing. But maybe it is. You know it's wrong and you continue to do it. If it is today and you realize maybe that's what's going on in my life, then you have an opportunity to say, Lord, I repent. I let go. I will receive that correction. I'm not going to continue in that sin. I I I think it's good. I'm glad I do it, but you're telling me it's wrong. I repent. I let it go. Strengthen me. Cleanse me. Empower me. Maybe it's prevention of a sin. You think about the Apostle Paul. He said he had a thorn in the flesh, right? Why? Not because he had done anything wrong, not because there was sin in his life, to keep him from sin. He said, God put this thorn in my flesh that I might not become elated, that I might not become proud of the visions. I mean, the man knew more stuff and he said less. He didn't tell us about the third heaven. I mean, we'd love a whole book called The Third Heaven. I mean, you could like everybody just come. That's all they ever want to read, right? And they study about heaven and rather than God shaping them into the people they want to be. And so he said, lest I get puffed up, God has given me this thorn. And I realized I asked him three times to take it away. And he said, no, I want you to learn a bigger lesson than being free of pain. And that is my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God here, he prevents him from becoming proud because he wants to teach him how to be continually dependent. And then maybe it's just, he's, he's just trying to, to educate you, right? He's just trying to teach you because the whole point, what is it? Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The more you know about God, you know his ways, you know his faithfulness in your life. Um, you know, I've said this, this comprehensive thing and we won't look it up, but you know, one of the favorite verses in the Bible is Romans eight twenty eight. You know, all things work together for good for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And one of the things about that, we think, well, that means I'm supposed to to make it through affliction and I'm I'm to, you know, I'm to to just kind of hang in there. I know somehow it'll work out. It will work out. But what we don't realize is what comes after that verse. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. This wise image of God, this wise image is not some sort of vague, ambiguous reality. I don't want to be a wise man. No. He says, I want you to be like my son, Jesus and I'm gonna refine you, and I am gonna prune you, and I am going to discipline you until you become like him. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. It's so helpful in the scripture when we actually have inspired commentary on scripture. And so I just want to read these verses to you. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see what the apostle, the, the writer to the Hebrews, he's trying to encourage people who are being persecuted, who are, are drifting, they want to go back to their Jewish faith, and what does he pull out? He pulls out Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. He says, didn't you forget that those words were addressing you as sons? The Bible is written for you. It was an exhortation for you. And he uses this Greek word here, paideia, which means a comprehensive uh, a training and education of children. It, it is cultivating and shaping the mind and morals and body of a child. In other words, he makes clear that the point of discipline is to absolutely make you that, that full, well-rounded child of God. That's, it's not punishment. It's discipline. It's training. He's training you. So why are we going, stop it, stop it? Don't do that in my life. It hurts. I mean, the point of the pain in your life, you can know even, he says here, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You might say, but this isn't coming from God. It's coming from sinners. The, uh, The writer of the Hebrews says, yeah, all right, it's coming from sinners. But ultimately, God is over all and he even works through their foolish, wicked, evil actions and he will even use that train you to develop your mind to develop your morals to develop you into that full well-rounded person and you notice what he says you notice how the, the the passage went looking to jesus that's the one that's who we're coming and what did jesus do you know what he did today he went through those gates he went through those gates of that city and the crowds were singing his praises. And they would have made him king in that moment. But he realized God had a bigger plan than earthly politics. He Had a bigger plan than removal of the Romans. He had something that was more difficult than the creating of the heavens and the earth. He had a higher goal. And that was to shape You into the image of Jesus. And first, you had to be rescued from your sins. So Jesus, rather than listening to the praises of people and detouring, it says he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He knew that the pain was real. It was going to be awful. But he knew what was on the other side. And it would be the saving of people like you and like me. You know, there's one time that you really get the full weight of this in the Old Testament. Remember, I told you that word musar? It means instruction, verbal correction. It can mean physical chastening, physical correction with the rod. But there's one time it actually means paying the penalty. It means paying the penalty. This is what it says. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, Musar, paying the penalty for sin that brought us peace what sin had he ever committed none he went through those gates he went back out those gates to calvary because he knew the biggest thing keeping us from being shaped into wise mature sons of God is that God was not our father And the only way we could be brought to him was to have our sins paid for. The penalty completely taken off because he absorbed the punishment. That's what Good Friday was about. He took our sins and he took the punishment that was due to us upon himself. And it's brought us peace. And inside that peace, he says, Now, I've saved you just like you were. I've paid the price for your sins. But I want you to become like I am. Would you pray with me? Father, I repent. Lord, I pray that others in this room are repenting right now for having questioned your discipline. Having complained about your work in our lives. Having felt that we are the only people that you've ever done this or that to. Lord, may we embrace your discipline and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, because I know you love me. You delight in me. And you want me to become like your son, Jesus. And there's a whole lot of work left to be done. Thank you that you made me a part of your family. Through the chastisement, through the penalty that Jesus paid, through the punishment that he received that I should have. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on our behalf. Teach us to love you. To trust you with all of our heart. To not lean on our own understanding. Our own works. Our own righteousness. But to lean completely on yours. To in every way. In every day. Every situation. To acknowledge you as the only savior. Our only hope. And as we do. Lord Jesus. Would you mercifully. In the power of your spirit. And by your word. Would you make us to be. Loving. Sacrificing, honest, firm, tender, faithful sons and daughters, just like you. In your name we pray, and together God's people said, Amen.